Good morning, my name is Roy. The Old Testament reading is found in the Psalms, uh, 33, verses 13 through 22. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul awaits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Etienne. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Maddie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 13, 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So God, we ask that by your Spirit you would breathe these words into our hearts, that they would come alive in us, they would bring light to us, they would bring life to us, they would bring hope to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Even if you're just sort of mildly tuned in to the world around you, maybe you don't watch news 24-7, but maybe you catch a headline on Twitter or an article on Facebook. Even if you're just mildly paying attention to the world around you, it's probably natural to wonder what is going on in the world. And how is this all going to end? How is this going to work out? Will it work out? What is going to happen? And maybe you think about Syria and the refugees, and you think about little children who are stranded and displaced. Maybe you think about sex trafficking around the world and and locally. Maybe you think about all of the different things, that wars and attacks, and it seems like every other day there's another bomb going off somewhere and another group 
group of uh, people being taken captive or prisoner or held hostage. And even if you're just mildly paying attention, it might be enough to make you say, how is this all going to end? How is this all going to end? And maybe it's a much shorter timeline. Maybe you're really just thinking about the elections and you're thinking, come November, how is this all going to end? Now, I don't know um, what your impressions are about the end times or what sort of influences you had in your life, or maybe I don't even know how much time you spend thinking about the end times, maybe not much at all. Um, one of my early introductions to it was as a kid in the 80s. I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, um, born in the 70s, but of course uh, conscious in the 80s, relatively speaking. And um, there was a movie that made its way to Malaysia in the 80s. It was probably big in the U.S. before that, but it was called Thief in the Night. Anyone hear this? Heard of this movie? It's, it's a story about the rapture. Now, interestingly enough, rapture theology is only about 150 years old. So we're going to wrestle with some of these end times things here over the course of this sermon together. But rapture theology, even though it's only about 150 years old, it really captured people's imaginations in the 70s and in the 80s. And so movies were made about it. And as a child, it was sort of left its mark on me because the whole premise was if you were right with the Lord, then when things got tough, you would be kind of taken up, snatched out of here, you know, and, and there would be like a pile of crumpled up clothes left on the floor, you know, and if you were not walking right with the Lord, then oh, I'll hate it for you, you know, you were kind of left behind, which is our own generation's version of those stories, the left behind narratives. Now, whatever we think of or don't think about those movies, those books, never mind that for a minute, probably the effect of those movies and those books is that we either are super tuned in and obsessed with how this is all going to pan out in the end, or we're totally freaked out, or we just don't care. And this seems like, Glenn, who cares? As long as we believe in Jesus and like find a group of friends who believe in him too and go to church. I mean, of all the doctrines in the world, who cares about this one, right? Well, the thing is, we're in this series on the Gospel of Mark. And the very next chapter that we're in is Mark 13, and Jesus spends a whole chapter in Mark. Of course, it wasn't a chapter back then, but he spends this much time. There weren't chapter breaks in the book, but he spends all this time talking about at least what seems to be the end times. So we've got to at least wrestle with it, right? We're, here we are in the text. This is, it, would be, it would be easy for me to skip over and be like, Mark 13, kind of a puzzling chapter. Let's just get on to the cross and the resurrection. We know what to do with that. What do we, why do we have to deal with Mark 13? In fact, some of you might know this word. The word is eschatology. It's the theological word to talk about the study of last things, the, the, of the age that's coming or the final age. Now, when you hear the word eschatology, if you have heard of it, you're like, oh, eschatology, that's all about like charts and diagrams and timelines and I just, ah, I get freaked out or I don't care. It's like the least important Christian doctrine, right? Or... You've never heard of the word, and you're thinking, well, why are we talking about this? Nobody, obviously, I didn't need it, because I've never heard that word. And I want to start this morning by suggesting that everybody has an eschatology. Everybody has a vision of the end. Everyone has a vision of the future that either brings you hope 
or brings you fear. Everyone has some version of how this is all going to play out in the end. Even if you're just thinking of the short-term future, the, 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 the immediate future. There are, for example, secular eschatologies. One example of a secular eschatology is progress. We sort of moderately believe that if we could just earn enough money, get education everywhere, redistribute the wealth, whatever the, the, the way you fill that in might be, that's a version of eschatology. In other words, how do you get, how do you make the world right again? What is your vision of the world being made right again? To put it kind of bluntly, every politician has an eschatology. Bernie Sanders has a kind of eschatology. Hillary Clinton has a kind of... Donald Trump has a kind of eschatology. Ted Cruz, they all have a kind of eschatology. A vision of the future that if we could just do this and this and this, then aha ha the human race will be saved. Or at least America. <laughs> and so everybody has a kind of eschatology. Everybody has a version of how this is going to play out. Now, if you actually, if you think about some of the popular movies about the future, you really see two very different visions of the future. You either have the one that shows us science and technology and progress and says, look, in the end, we're going to find a way to have life on Mars. And when we finish, you know, sort of our stuff on this planet, we can find a way to exist there. Or there's, you know, some version of saying humanity will triumph again, you know, whether it's Will, Smith's against, Will Smith against the aliens in Independence Day, or whether it's the kids movie WALL-E. I mean, there's some version of saying, look, if we could rally together, we could save the world and secure a better future. That's a kind of eschatology. But then there's a whole other set of movies that show a, a kind of a dystopian future, you know, that says, science and technology, no way. The, the robots are going to kill us one day. You know, and so you have movies like, like Ex Machina, and you have other movies that, that, say, that show you the story of this kind of Frankenstein on a, on a, on a mass level, that the things we create will eventually destroy us. Our machines, our droids, our AI will eventually destroy us. And so when you look out in the world, there's actually, everybody has an eschatology. Everybody has a view. It's either one that is generally a, a kind of progress or a kind of disaster. And then maybe Christians have sort of thought, well, I know what Christian eschatology is. It's, it's going to get real bad down here and we're going to get out of here. And so that's all we sort of seem to have to say about the future and about the world. I've heard preachers in very, very large churches say, this world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, but thanks be to God, we're not going to be here for it. Now, that's the whole sermon. And the question for us is, is this a Christian eschatology? Is this actually the way Jesus talked about the future? Mark 13 is not only the next chapter in our series, but it is the place where Jesus says, the future is going to be both worse than you feared and better than you hoped. In Mark 13, Jesus basically says, there is a future coming that is both worse than you feared and better than you hoped, if you just kind of pay attention. So we're going to tackle this, but as we do, I want to lay out a couple of things. One, there is a difference when we read these, these passages of Scripture. It's important to make the distinction in our mind between symbol and code. You guys know the difference between symbol and code? Code has only one referent. 
A code only means this thing. If you're watching, you know, National Treasure or whatever other Nicolas Cage movie, you know, where you're saying, okay, this is the code. This symbol, this sort of this uh, image or icon equals this. It's a code. It only has one reference point. But a symbol has many reference points. A symbol, you could say, well, this thing can refer to that or that or that or that or that. It has, it has many things that it refers to, okay? Um, Give you an example right out of the pages of Scripture. The image of an Antichrist. Okay, you could say, ah, there have been many beast-like rulers throughout history. There, when, when the New Testament was being written, there was an emperor named Nero, there, that he was rather beast-like. He was Antichrist-like. But so, have, so were so many other different rulers as you progress on through history. That's a way of reading the images as a symbol. Many references. But... An incorrect way to do this, and this is, this is, this is standing in the tradition of, um, from early church theologians all the way until current day, an, in, an, an incorrect way to treat it is to treat it like a code, to say, aha, I figured it out, Antichrist, it is, insert name of despised politician, you know, boom, there it is. In the first service, I said a name. I don't know if I'll say a name. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Victorinus, Victorinus was an early church father in the early 300s. He said, we must not look for a specific chronology in apocalyptic visions, but rather follow the meaning of those things which are prophesied. In other words, look for the meaning, don't look for the timeline. We're not here to chart this out as if it were a code and to say, aha, a beast means this and a horn means this and hills mean this. Because by the way, those refer to several things. The beast with seven horns, it's certainly at least referred to Rome and its seven hills and all of these different things. So there's many reference uh, re- re- to a symbol. So what is Jesus referring to? As we look at Mark 13, what is Jesus referring to? What could he possibly have been talking about? Because there's all of these different um, things that he's saying about the end. What is he referring to? Well, when you look at kind of the consensus of biblical scholars and saying, okay, let's set this against what early Christians, how they treated the text all, all throughout history, we kind of piece together at least three things, okay? If you're writing notes, you could write this down. The first thing it refers to is a future coming. For sure, a future coming. Mark 13, verse 14 through 27, and verse 32 to 37 in particular. These specific verses refer to a future coming, a coming again of Jesus. Now, I put the word appearing there too because the actual Greek word for the coming again of Jesus is this word parousia, which doesn't strictly mean a return, but rather a revealing or an appearing. Some of you, you've thought about the return of Jesus in a way that actually triggers your abandonment fears. Because it says to you, well, he's not here. Why won't he come back? Why won't he come back? Come back, Jesus! But actually, the way to think through it in the New Testament is Jesus is here. He is reigning now. But one day, that reign will be revealed in an obvious way. That's why the creed says, he will come again in glory. It will be obvious. It will all of a sudden take over. So you could say the coming again is really like an appearing or a revealing. No doubt Mark 13 refers to something far off in the future. But it also refers to AD 70. 
AD 70 was the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Specifically these verses, 1 through 13 and 28 through 31. It specifically refers to a historical event. So when Jesus talks about the temple and this stuff is going to happen here and and they'll do this and desecrate the temple, he's talking about something that actually happened about 7 to 10 years after the time he said it. In fact, did you know that one of the reasons the early Christians believed in Jesus as one who was speaking the truth from God was that he had accurately prophesied about the destruction in AD 70. That was one of their immediate validation points. Not only the resurrection, but also this thing of he said it was going to happen, and it actually did. So Mark, when we, as we've been through the series, the Gospel of Mark was written somewhere in the 60s, AD 60s, that is, right? Somewhere around AD 63, 64. Six years later, seven years later, all of these things come to pass. And so these early Christians are saying, there you go. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has fallen. It's exactly like he said. So Jesus is referring to that. But thirdly, there's another reference point in Mark 13 that is often missed. And that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mark 13, verses 24 through 27 in particular. Now, a lot of times you'll say, wait a minute, what what do you mean it refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus? This is about the end times, Glenn. Hang on for a minute. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. A couple chapters later, Mark will describe the scene of the crucifixion, and he will use many of these same images. The sun turned dark. The ground shook. He's using apocalyptic language. He's using the same language to say the world, it was as if the world was ending when the Son of God died. It was as if the world was ending when the Son of God died. You're like, well, what about all the stuff about him coming on the clouds, the Son of Man coming? That, that's not the, the resurrection, is it? Well, hang on a minute. That phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, is quoted from Daniel 7. Daniel is an Old Testament prophet, and he says, from the perspective of heaven, the Son of Man will suffer and will be vindicated, and he will come on the clouds to take a seat of authority. So now, wait a minute. Every time I've thought about Jesus coming on the clouds, I've thought about him coming down. You're telling me that in Daniel 7, the coming on the clouds is a coming up from the perspective of God. Yes. Yes. So is there a future coming? Yes, there is. But there certainly says, this is why Luke, when he's writing the book of Acts, he describes the ascension as Jesus coming up on the clouds. It's a way of saying This is happening. This is unfolding. You remember Jesus said, some of you will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in glory. Well, wait a minute. That's a lie. Unless it also refers to his resurrection and ascension. Now, have any of you ever been to the eye doctor? Have you ever done the thing where they put the glasses on you and then they put a lens on then they put another lens on and and then like, is it better or worse, you know? better. Okay, another one, and another one, until you're finally like, yes, I see. Okay, that's a little bit like Mark 13. Is it about the future? 
lens one. Yes. Is it about AD 70? Yes. Lens two. Is it also about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Yes. Aha. Now I see it. It's three different lenses that help us see the picture with beautiful clarity. And all three of these lenses matter because it helps us walk through it. So now we know what Jesus is referring to, but why? Why? Why is he telling them this? Because in a way, the way we answer this question is really the same way we answer, why are we taking a whole Sunday to talk about this? Like, I mean, come on, man. It's like, this is not my life. I, I really don't care about the end times. I'm pretty happy just to, like, keep working and doing my thing, you know? Why does Jesus want them to know it? Why does Jesus want you to know it? Number one, actually, before we say number one, there's three reasons. Before we say that, let's say why he does not, uh, why he's not telling them this. Verse 32, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father so the reason he's not tell, uh, the reason he's telling us this is not so that we can figure out timelines and chronologies. It's not so that we can figure it out, solve the puzzle, crack the code. Not a code, right? That's not the reason. What is the reason? Number one, so that we will not be led astray. Mark 13, verses 4 through 6, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Did you know that about 100 years after Jesus' life, there was another Jewish revolutionary that people thought was a messiah? His name was Simon Bar Kochva. Some people call it the Kosiva Revolt. It lasted, it had a little bit of success, so much success that they thought a new era has begun, a new day has begun, and they minted coins, because that's what you do when you think a new era has begun. They made coins. And so you can find these coins in, in, in certain museums that show it year one. I mean, how, how sort of magnificently confident is that? The year one. In other words, the new world has begun. Year one. Simon Bar Kochva was, was, was sort of viewed as the Messiah, except that it only lasted a few years and then it was over. And they're like, oh no, oh no. And this is what Jesus was saying. Look, don't make the mistake. Others will come claiming to give what only I can give. Others will come claiming to bring the kingdom that only I can bring. Don't buy it. And listen, the thing is, we don't have Simon Bar Kochva in our day, but we have other false messiahs. We have all kinds of false messiahs that we say, oh, this person, and I'm not just talking about politics, I'm talking about anything. It could be a business venture. It could be anything that you say will bring you things that actually only Jesus and his kingdom can bring. A false messiah is anything that you trust to bring you things that only Jesus and his kingdom can bring. Did you know that in Jesus' day, Caesar made some pretty outrageous claims? He was called the son of God. He was called the prince of peace because he had ushered in the Pax Romana. On Roman coins, there were inscriptions that said, freedom, peace, prosperity. And the early Christians they did maybe the most radical thing you could imagine. They took those slogans and applied them to Jesus. 
They stole Caesar's political propaganda slogans and said, yeah, not so fast, Caesar. It's not true. There is a son of God. His name is Jesus. There is a prince of peace. He's Jesus. There is a person who brings us true freedom. His name is Jesus. And yes, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And that's why Rome killed Christians. Not because they were a cute little group that was having prayer meetings, but because they were making outrageous claims. They were saying God's kingdom has arrived and it's not Rome. Now here's the bitter irony, my friends. Early Christians stole political, political slogans and applied it to Jesus and, as, and said, he's the true fulfillment. As American Christians, have we taken Christian principles and applied them to earthly rulers? Now, here's, here's the irony, right? They stole worldly empire political slogans and said, no, 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 that's only true of Jesus. Have we taken things that are only true of Jesus and applied them to, oh, oh that is the hope. That will bring me peace. That's the tragedy Jesus was warning against. Don't be led astray. There is no other Messiah than Jesus the crucified and risen Lord. Secondly, Jesus is telling them this so that, they, so that we will not be afraid. Mark 13, verse 7 through 8, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of birth pains. It's amazing, you know, because... We have a rather short view of the history of the world. And we imagine, oh, there's an earthquake there. There's an earthquake. It happened right there. There was an earthquake. There's war. Oh, this is it. St. Augustine, who wrote about 400 years after St. Mark wrote his gospel, St. Augustine said, how must it have been in every generation since there are always wars and earthquakes and violence? Saying, this is... Clearly, he's saying, clearly Jesus' point is not to give us <gasps> quick signposts. He's showing us that in this world that we live, this in between the ages, the arrival of the king, but not, the, not yet the culmination of the kingdom. Do you know, earthquakes are when two tectonic plates shift and, and, and rub up against each other, they start to bump each other, right? Two things are, are hitting against each other. The age that we have lived in and the age to come that Jesus has brought. And so earthquakes themselves are a, meta, are a picture of the fact that we're living in between two ages. We're still kind of here, but man, a new one has begun and it's disrupting the old one. But my goodness, there's turmoil all throughout the world. Can I say this to you? For, for any of you who are overwhelmed with fear when you watch the news or read these headlines, take heart. Take heart. Jesus says, look, I'm telling this to you because I don't want you to be afraid. Don't fix your eyes on those things. The third reason Jesus is telling his disciples this is so that we can be ready. Mark 13, verse 9, but be on your guard. Again, in verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. Now, underline, highlight, circle, whatever, the number of times he says things like, Keep awake. 
Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. A big reason Jesus takes the time to say this is he wants the disciples to stay awake, stay alert, stay tuned in, pay attention, look at what's happening in the world. You know, I think it's amazing because alertness, awakeness has to do with seeing more than what is before our eyes. It has to do with seeing more than what is just immediately before our eyes. When you wake up in the morning, it's because the sun has, has, has uh, begun to shine. And it causes you to see the world now that the sunlight is coming in. Well, in a similar way, the Son of God, whose light is shining now, is meant to wake us up to see the world in a different kind of light. A different kind of light. That means we don't look at stuff that's happening in the world and say, oh no. We look and we say, Jesus reigns. Jesus will come again in glory. Jesus' kingdom will have no end. The book of Revelation, oftentimes paired with these like gospel texts about the end times, you know, the book of Revelation. John says in the opening line, he says, this is the apocalypse of Jesus. Apocalypse means revealing. What John is saying is not, this is prophetic timelines about the return of Christ. Nope. What John is saying is this is the revealing of Jesus. John is writing to a group of churches who are discouraged, who are fearful, who are oppressed, who are persecuted, and he's saying, guys, guys. See a bigger story. See a truer reality. Let me pull the curtain back and help you see it's not Nero who's ruling the world and crushing Christians. It's Jesus who reigns. And by the way, the Jesus who reigns is the lamb who was slain. And John begins to unpack what that, meta, what that symbol means for us. He says, look, if Jesus, the lion who reigns, is actually the lamb who was slain, then that means everything is upside down here. The martyrs whom you thought were the victims and the lo- losers are actually the ones who will reign on thrones. I had a friend, a, a person say to me, I was talking about some of this stuff, he said, well, Glenn, that's all very cute. But, but, you know, the martyrs in Syria, they don't need this. What they need is us to come in there. Now, that might be true. St. Augustine made this case about a just war when, when it is within our means to be able to rescue the helpless. That's true. But there's a deeper reality that this person was not seeing. In his mind, the story of the world ends with death, even though he's a Christian. In his mind... Being martyred for your faith was the end and the worst and the unthinkable. John says it's not the unthinkable. Because the lion who reigns is actually the lamb who was slain, it means the ones who suffer for the sake of Christ will one day reign with Christ. 
That doesn't mean we don't act. That doesn't mean we don't. Of course we do that. But we also need to see the world through this lens. To be awake is to see in a new light. To say, I'm not seeing the world purely through a physical or material or worldly lens. I am seeing through the lens of Jesus, the crucified and the risen. Be awake. Be ready. So it is probably the most ironic thing that the very next chapter, after all of this stuff about Jesus telling his disciples to stay awake, is a story about them falling asleep. Mark 14, verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation or tribulation. Those words are often interchangeable. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. It is, it's also in a very real way, save us from the great tribulation. It's okay to pray that. Jesus says, it's okay to pray that. We, we, we're not wishing to go through the great truth. But, but Jesus is saying, look, Simon, pray that you won't enter into this truth. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want you to see something here. The story of the world is summed up in the story of Jesus. The story of the whole world is summed up in the story of Jesus. Jesus is embodying in himself what he's talked about. He says the world will come to a point of great tribulation, of great heaviness. There'll be destruction and death. But don't fear. It's like birth pains. Something beautiful will emerge in the end. And in his own life, he begins to live that out. In Gethsemane, in the agony of Gethsemane, he says, this is the hour of my great tribulation. And he goes on to the cross, to the, the, the moment of his own death. And the disciples, they do what you and I are afraid that we'll do. We won't be ready. We won't be watchful. We won't be alert. Maybe the real reason why end time stuff scares us is we're just not sure we can handle it. And if someone says it's bad stuff that's coming, you say, oh no, I don't know if I can endure. And if someone says, you, you just got to be prepared, you say, well, I don't know if I can be prepared. How do I prepare? Do I need more guns and ammo and water? And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the disciples are saved not because of their readiness, but because of Jesus' faithfulness. The disciples are saved not because they were so watchful and alert in the hour of tribulation, but because Jesus was faithful to go from the agony of Gethsemane to the, to the death on Golgotha, the cross at Golgotha, because Jesus went all the way. The disciples were saved not by their readiness or watchfulness, but by Jesus' faithfulness. And so it is for us 
The reason for our hope is not our readiness, but his faithfulness. The reason for our hope is not our... See, all, every time you hear end times preaching, in, in the end, inevitably, it sounds like someone is saying, so this is on you. Don't, don't mess this up. So you better know. So you're like, okay, okay, great. Maybe I better figure out charts. Or you're like, maybe I better stockpile. Or maybe I just, I just want to be ready. But the emphasis of this story is not our readiness, but his faithfulness. Because in spite of the living Christ giving all of this information to the disciples, they fell asleep. Do you think there's any better hope for me or for you? I don't think there is. And so if, if my hope rested upon my readiness, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Paul, writing to Timothy, said, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. He says, yeah, look, look, there is a point when you reject what Jesus is offering. Yeah, there, there is a cost to that. But then he says, but if we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, this is what I want to know. I'm not going to deny. You're not going to deny him. We're not going to blatantly and cold-heartedly reject him. And no, most of us are going to be like Peter sleeping in the garden. We're not going to be like the ones that say, oh, no, I, I, I reject you, Jesus. No, for most of us, the question is not what happens if we reject him. For most of us, the question is, what if, what if, what, what if we fall asleep? What if, what if we're not ready? Well, what if we're not alert? And Paul says, don't you know the good news? That if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. Church, the hope, the reason for our hope is not our readiness, but his faithfulness. This, this is why in the Old Testament reading, the psalmist said, my hope is in your steadfast love. In Hebrew, this word for steadfast love is a way to talk about God's loyal and covenantal love, the love of God that does not break covenant even when we break covenant with him, the love of God that will not quit on you. Friends, the reason for our hope when we think about how this is all going to end is not because of this, this, this idea or this idea or this. No, 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 no. The reason for our hope is we trust Jesus, the crucified and risen, who will be faithful to us to the end. He won't quit on you. <laughs> yeah, come on, go ahead then. <laughs> it is the steadfast love of the Lord that we see in Jesus in this agony in Gethsemane saying, Father, let this cup pass, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that takes him on to the cross and says, I'll pay the price in myself. I will take on the very story of the world. And in the resurrection, it is the steadfast love of the Lord that says, I will not abandon him to the grave, but will raise him up. See, that is, in a microcosm, the story of the world. One day, God the creator, out of his steadfast love, will let the world pass through a kind of death, but then the maker of heaven and earth will make all things new again. And all who are in Christ will be raised up and given resurrection bodies because our hope is the steadfast love of the Lord. Now that is an eschatology worth believing in. That is a picture of the end that is actually a picture of hope. 
And what you find is that when from early church fathers all the way till the, around the Reformation and a little bit beyond, this is what they talked about when they talked about this. That's why the words, the closing words of the creed say, we look for what? We look for the rapture and our escape. We look forward to dying and getting out of this earth and going to heaven. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You don't need to fear because our hope rests on his faithfulness. St. Augustine said, may we not resist his first coming so that we need not tremble at his second. The good news for us is Welcome Jesus today. Welcome Jesus and his steadfast love, giving himself to you. Welcome Jesus, the giving of his life for you. Welcome Jesus. Don't resist him. And for all who welcome him, you need not tremble at his second coming. Don't resist his first so that you need not tremble at his second. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads this morning? Some of you, this is a good moment to say, Jesus, I've sort of in different ways placed my hope in myself. Maybe my own goodness, maybe my own ability to be ready, maybe my own ability to figure things out. Look, we are to live as a bride preparing herself for the bridegroom. We are to let the work of the Spirit sanctify us, purify all of that stuff. But the reason we can be confident at his coming is not because of us, but because of him. Do you hear that this morning, church? The reason we can be confident at his coming, not because of us, because of him.